Chapter 12 of Vanished Arizona. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Vanished Arizona Recollections of the Army Life of a New England Woman by Martha Summer Hayes. Chapter 12 Life Amongst the Apaches. Bowen proved to be a fairly good cook, and I ventured to ask people to dinner in our little dining hall room a veritable box of a place. One day, feeling particularly ambitious to have my dinner a success, I made a bold attempt at oyster patties. With the confidence of youth and inexperience, I made the pastry, and it was a success. I took a can of Baltimore oysters and did them up in a fashion that astonished myself. And when, after the soup, each guest was served with a hot oyster patty, one of the cavalry officers fairly gasped. Oyster patty, if I'm alive, where on earth? Bless my stars! And this at Camp Apache! And by holy Jerusalem! They are good, too, exclaimed Captain Riley, and turning to Bowen, he said, Bowen, did you make these? Bowen straightened himself up to a six foot two, clapped his heels together and came to attention, and looked straight to the front and replied, Yes, sir. I thought I heard Captain Riley say in an undertone to his neighbor, The hell he did but I was not sure. At that season we got excellent wild turkeys there, and a good South Down mutton, and one could not complain of such living. But I could never get accustomed to the wretched small space of one room and a half, for the kitchen being detached could scarcely be counted in. I had been born and brought up in a spacious house, with plenty of bedrooms, closets, and an immense old-time garret. The forlorn makeshifts for closets, and the absence of all conveniences, annoyed me, and added much to the difficulties of my situation. Added to this, I soon discovered that my husband had a penchant for buying and collecting things which seemed utterly worthless to me, and only added to the number of articles to be handled and packed away. I begged him to refrain, and to remember that he was married, and that we had not the money to spend in such ways. He really did try to improve, and denied himself the taking of many alluring share in raffles for old saddles, pistols, guns, and cowboy stuff, which was always being held at the cutler's store. But an auction of condemned hospital stores was too much for him, and he came in triumphantly one day, bringing a box of antiquated dentist instruments in his hand. "'Good gracious!' I cried. "'What can you ever do with those forceps?' "'Oh, they are splendid,' he said, "'and they will come in mighty handy some time.' I saw that he loved tools and instruments, and I reflected, "'Why not?' There are lots of things that I have a passion for and love, just as he loves those things, and I shall never say anything more about it. Only, I added, aloud, do not expect me to pack up such trash when we come to move. You will have to look out for it yourself. So with that spiteful remark from me, the episode of the forceps was ended, for the time at least. As the winter came on, the isolation of the place had a rather depressing effect upon us all. The officers were engaged in their various duties— drill, court-martial, instruction, and other military occupations. They found some diversion at the store, where the ranchmen assembled and told frontier stories and played exciting games of poker. Jack's duties as commissary officer kept him much away from me, and I was very lonely. The mail was brought in twice a week by a soldier on horseback. When he failed to come in at the usual time, much anxiety was manifested, and I learned that only a short time before, one of the mail carriers had been killed by Indians, and the mail destroyed. 
I did not wonder that on mail day, everybody came out in front of the quarters and asked, Is the mail carrier in? And nothing much was done or thought of on that day until we saw him come jogging in and the mail bag tied behind his saddle. Our letters were from two to three weeks old. The eastern mail came via Santa Fe to the terminus of the railroad, and then by stage, for in 1874, the railroads did not extend very far into the southwest. At a certain point on the old New Mexico road, our man met the San Carlos carrier and received the mail for Apache. I do not understand, I said, how any soldier can be found to take such a dangerous detail. Why so, said Jack. They like it. I should think that when they got into those canyons and narrow defiles, they would think of the horrible fate of their predecessor, said I. Perhaps they do, he answered. But a soldier is always glad to get a detail that gives him a change from the routine of post life. I was getting to learn about the indomitable pluck of our soldiers. They did not seem to be afraid of anything. At Camp Apache, my opinion of the American soldier was formed, and it has never changed. In the long march across the territory, they had cared for my wants and performed uncomplainingly for me services usually rendered by a woman. Those were before the days of lineal promotion. Officers remained with their regiments for many years. A feeling of regimental prestige held officers and men together. I began to share that feeling. I knew the names of the men in the company, and not one but was ready to do a service for the lieutenant's wife. Kay had long been a bachelor company. And now a young woman had joined it. I was a person to be pampered and cared for, and they knew besides that I was not long in the army. During that winter, I received many a wild turkey and other nice things for the table from the men of the company. I learned to know and thoroughly respect the enlisted man of the American army, and now into the varied kaleidoscope of my army life stepped the Indian agent. And all the unkept, unshorn, disagreeable looking personages who had ever stepped foot into our quarters, this was the worst. Heaven save us from a government which appoints such men as that to watch over and deal with Indians, I cried, as they left the house. Is it possible that his position here demands social recognition? I added. Hush! said the second lieutenant of K Company. It's the Interior Department that appoints the Indian agents, and besides, he added, It's not good taste on your part, Martha, to abuse the government, which gives us our bread and butter. Well, you can say what you like and preach policy all you wish. No government on earth can compel me to associate with such men as those. With that assertion, I left the room to prevent farther argument, and I will here add that in my experience on the frontier, which extended over a long period, it was never my good fortune to meet with an Indian agent who impressed me as being the right sort of man to deal with those children of nature. For Indians are like children, and their intuitions are keen. They know and appreciate honesty and fair dealing, and they know a gentleman when they meet one. The winter came on apace, but the weather was mild and pleasant. One day some officers came in and said we must go over to the ravine that evening. Where the Indians were going to have a rare sort of dance. There was no one to say to me, Don't go. And as we welcomed any little excitement which would relieve the monotony of our lives, we cast aside all doubts of the advisability of my going. So after dinner we joined the others and sallied forth into the darkness of an Arizona night. We crossed the large parade ground and picked our way over a rough and pathless country, lighted only by the stars above. Arriving at the edge of the ravine, what a scene was before us! We looked down into a natural amphitheater in which blazed great fires. Hordes of wild Apaches darted about, 
while others sat on logs, beating their tom-toms. I was afraid and held back, but the rest of the party descended into the ravine, and leaning on a good strong arm, I followed. We all sat down on the great trunk of a fallen tree, and soon the dancers came into the arena. They were entirely naked except for the loincloth. Their bodies were painted, and from their elbows and knees stood out bunches of feathers, giving them the appearance of huge flying creatures, jingling things that were attached to their neck and arms. Upon their heads were large frames, made to resemble the branching horns of an elk, and as they danced and bowed their heads, the horns lent them the appearance of some unknown animal, and added greatly to their height. Their feathers waved and their jingles shook, and their painted bodies twisted and turned in the light of the great fire, which roared and leaped on high. At one moment they were birds, at another animals, at the next they were demons. The noise of the tom-toms and the harsh shouts of the Indians grew wilder and wilder. It was weird and terrifying. Then came a pause. The arena was cleared, and with much solemnity, two wicked-looking creatures came out and performed sort of a shadow dance, brandishing knives as they glided through the intricate figures. It was fascinating but unearthly scene, and the setting completed the illusion. Fright deprived me of the power of thought, but in a sort of unconscious way I felt that Orpheus must have witnessed just such mad revels when he came down into Pluto's regions. Suddenly the shouts became war-hoops, the demons brandished their knives madly, and nodded their branching horns. The tom-toms were beaten in a dreadful din, and terror seized my heart. What if they be treacherous, and had lured our small party down to this ravine for an ambush? The thing could well be, I thought. I saw uneasiness in the faces of other women, and by mutual consent we got up and slowly took our departure. I barely had the strength to climb up the steep side of the hollow. I was thankful to escape from its horrors. Scarce three months after that some of the same band of Indians fired into the garrison and fled to the mountains. I remarked to Jack that I thought that we were very imprudent to go to see that dance, and he said he supposed we were but I had never regarded life in such a light way as he seemed to. Women usually like to talk over their trials and their wonderful adventures, and that is why I am writing this, I suppose. Men simply will not talk about such things. The cavalry beauty seemed to look at this frontier life philosophically. What she really thought about it I never knew. Mrs. Bailey was so much occupied by the care of her young child and various outdoor amusements that she did not apparently think much about things that happened around us. At all events, she never seemed inclined to talk about them. There was no one else to talk to. The soil was strange, and the atmosphere a foreign one to me. Life did not seem to be taken seriously out there, as it was back in New England, where they always loved to sit down and talk things over. I was downright lonesome for my mother and sisters. I could not go out very much at that time, so I occupied myself a good deal with needlework. One evening we heard firing across the canyon. Jack caught up his sword, buckling on his belt as he went out. Engines fighting on the other side of the river, some soldier reported. Finding that it did not concern us, Jack said, Come out to the backyard, Martha, and look over the stockade. I think you can see across the river. So I hurried out to the stockade, but Jack, seeing that I was not tall enough, picked up an empty box that stood under the window of the room belonging to the doctor, when thud! Something fell out into the ground and rolled away. I startled involuntary. It was dark in the yard. I stood stock still. What was that? I whispered. 
"'Nothing but an old Edom cheese,' said this true-hearted soldier of mine. "'I knew it was not a cheese, but said no more. "'I stood up on the box, watched the firing like a man, "'and went quietly back into the quarters. "'After retiring, I said, "'You might just as well tell me now, "'you will have to, sooner or later, what was in the box. "'It had a dreadful sound as it rolled away on the ground. "'Well,' he said, "'if you must know,' It was an engine head that the doctor had saved, to take to Washington with him. It had sort of a malformed skull or jawbone or something, but he left it behind. I guess it got a little too old for him to carry, he laughed. Somebody told me that there was a head in the yard, but I forgot all about it. Lucky thing you didn't see it, wasn't it? I suppose you'd have been scared. Well, I must tell the fatigue party tomorrow to take it away. Now don't let me forget it, and this soldier of many battles fell into the peaceful slumber which comes to those who do not know fear. The next day I overheard him telling Major Worth what had happened, and adding that he would roast that doctor if he ever came back. I was seeing the rugged side of life, indeed, and getting accustomed to shocks. Now the Calvary beauty gave a dinner. It was lovely, but in the midst of it we perceived a sort of confusion of moccasined footsteps outside of the dining-room. My nerves were, by this time, always on alert. I glanced through the large door opening out into the hall and saw a group of Indian scouts. They laid a coffee sack down by the corner fireplace near the front door. The commanding officer left the table hastily. The portiere was drawn. I had heard tales of atrocious cruelties committed by a band of Indians who had escaped from the reservation and were ravaging the country around. I had heard how they maimed poor sheep and cut off the legs of cattle at the first joint, leaving them to die, how they tortured women and burned their husband and children before their eyes. I had also heard that the Indian scouts were out after them with orders to bring them in, dead or alive. The next day I learned that the ringleader's head was in the bag that I had seen, and that the others had surrendered and returned. The scouts were Apaches in the pay of the government, and I had always heard that as long as they were serving as scouts, they showed themselves loyal and would hunt down their nearest relative. Major Worth got tired of the monotony of a bachelor's life at Camp Apache and decided to give a dance in his quarters and invite the chiefs. I think that the other officers did not wholly approve of it, although they felt friendly enough towards them as long as they were not causing disturbances. But to meet savage Apaches on the basis of social equality in an officer's quarters and to dance in a quadrille with him, well... The limit of all things had been reached. However, Major Worth, who was actually suffering from the ennui of frontier life in winter and in time of peace, determined to carry out his project. So he had his quarters, which were quite spacious, cleared and decorated with evergreen boughs. From his company, he secured some men who could play the banjo and guitar, and all of the officers and their wives and the chiefs with their harems came to this novel fit. A quadrille was formed in which the chiefs danced opposite the officers. The squaws sat around, as they were too shy to dance. These chiefs were painted, and wore only their necklaces and the customary loincloth, throwing their blankets about their shoulders when they had finished dancing. I noticed again Chief Diablo's great good looks. Conversation was carried on principally by signs and nods, and through the interpreter, a white man named Cooley. Besides, the officers had picked up many a short phrases of the harsh and guttural Apache tongue. Diablo was charmed with the young, handsome wife of one of the officers, and asked her husband how many ponies he would take for her, and Pedro asked Major Worth if all those white squaws belonged to him. 
The party passed off pleasantly, though, and was not especially subversive to discipline, although I believed it was not repeated. Afterwards, long afterwards, when we were stationed at David's Island, New York Harbor, and Major Worth was no longer a bachelor, but a dignified married man, and had gained his star in the Spanish War, we used to meet occasionally down by the barge office, or taking a Fenster promenade on Broadway, and we would always stand a while and chat over the old days at Camp Apache in 74. Never mind how pressing our mutual engagements were, we could never forgo the pleasure of talking over those wild days and contrasting them with our then-present surroundings. Shall you ever forget my party, he said, the last time we met. End of chapter 13. Recording by Dobson Fly, Scottsdale, Arizona.